We all know what it's like to be emotionally overwhelmed in the wake of some traumatic event over which we had no control. And while there are any number of coping strategies that may help see us through to the other side, when it comes to philosophers, the default response strategy is unerringly predictable. Think the situation through to its depths, they trust, and all will be understood. And once properly understood, all will be well. Although this formulation applies more to a distinctively Western frame of mind, in one way or another, it is the universal creed of wisdom lovers worldwide that some form of thoughtfulness, including the Buddhist's non-thinking mindfulness, can help to bring advantageous clarity to our perplexities and infirmities. What, after all, are we doing when we do philosophy if not thinking in hopes of understanding, and that in order to be happier, or at least a little less miserable? Even when the Taoist tells us it's wiser to stop thinking, for only then can we be rid of our troubles, we find ourselves contemplating their words, perhaps wondering through what mode of agency they were able to formulate them, if not, again, some form of thoughtfulness. No doubt there are significant disagreements as to where is a legitimate place for philosophical thought to begin, what its limits are, to what it can be meaningfully applied, what it can or cannot do, whether it is culturally or historically bounded or universal, superior or inferior to other modes of apprehension, how it can be revolutionized, whether it should be censured, and so on. On these questions, philosophers will generally divide into camps. But on one thing, we all seem to agree. Let's at least think about it. After all, what's the alternative? To pray about it? To meditate? To dream and sing and paint? To just say, fuck it, and go bowling? Philosophical thought may indeed conclude that one or more of these alternatives are often, if not always, preferable, but probably not without first thinking about it. And to the extent that in the process, thought itself is put into question, at least in the specifically Western philosophical tradition, the questioner will almost certainly encounter certain features peculiar to it. Let's consider two such features. First, in thinking about thought, we naturally tend to distinguish it from emotion. Emotions, we tend to think, belong to bodies, whereas thoughts belong to minds. Bodies are material, the mind immaterial. After all, thoughts are not extended in space and time, and it is through thought that we grasp abstract concepts like mathematical axioms. Emotions, on the other hand, have powerful visceral effects. They hit us in the gut and touch our heart. Secondly, and correspondingly, in thinking about thought, we very quickly discover that not all thoughts are created equal. We do not, for example, count the thoughts of a Lindsey Graham as being of equal value to those of an Albert Einstein. We distinguish in a word, or two words, between rational and irrational thoughts. Ordinarily speaking, we call a person rational who tries to think methodically about something without allowing their emotions or prejudices to get in the way. We call them irrational, on the other hand, when their thinking is in some sense inadequate, perhaps owing to their being overwhelmed by passion or blinded by circumstances, prejudices, delusions, or superstitions. The mind, writes American philosopher John Dewey, is sometimes baffled and arrested. Then it forms the matter of reverie, of dream, ideas floating, not anchored to any existence as its property. Emotions that are equally loose and floating cling to these ideas. The pleasure they afford is the reason why they are entertained 
and so allowed to occupy the scene. They are attached to existence only in a way that is felt to be only fanciful and unreal. Confusion leads to free-floating, irrational, or inadequate ideas, to which our emotions easily become attached owing to the pleasure or consolation they afford. Of course, many excellent things may follow, we may tend to think, from saying to hell with rationality and opting instead to freely unleash subterranean forces of pure passion and imagination. Witness art, which is often both caricatured and celebrated as a producer of such quote-unquote irrational wonders. But why is it that we make these distinctions in the first place, generally pegging emotions to bodies and tending to correlate them with the irrational, while thoughts we attribute to minds and allow for the possibility of their being, when adequately conceived, eminently rational? If emotions can become attached to irrational ideas, can they also attach themselves to rational ones? What is or should be the criterion by which we differentiate the rational from the irrational? And how exactly can or should we distinguish between thoughts and emotions? To grapple with such questions is to grapple with the history of how our thought has been shaped to think precisely according to these divisions and, roughly, along these lines. Moreover, to the extent that to be alive as a human being is to be thinking and feeling, is to grapple with the question of who we are, and in so doing, to encounter a millennia-long tradition of philosophical reflection on reason, emotion, and human nature. A tradition at the pinnacle of which stands one of the most magisterial and original books on wisdom for a life well-lived to have ever been conceived. This book, published in 1677 and simply titled Ethics, is one that suggests that while to the intellectually nervous, certain excellent things may appear to be the products of mystical, purely emotional, or faith-based forces, in the end, all things, insofar as they are excellent, are in fact the difficult accomplishment of serene reason reigning supreme. This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Nick Cook. Today, we are coming to you from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where we are honored to welcome as our guest one of the world's foremost scholars on one of history's greatest philosophers. The guest is Dr. Stephen Nadler, award-winning author of more than a dozen books and professor of philosophy, humanities, and Jewish studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Nadler, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And the great philosopher we are here to discuss is Baruch Spinoza, one of the most radical and controversial thinkers of the early modern period. Spinoza was excommunicated from the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam in which he was raised, censured and widely detested by religious authorities, never married, though he is regarded as having had a sweet and even-tempered personality, was socially gregarious, modest, cautious, and possessed of a confidence in the powers of human reason that shocked the world a shock, the reverberations of which we can still feel today. Dr. Nadler, I sit before you now with uh, my Spinoza mug in one hand and your award-winning biography of the bombshell rationalist philosopher in the other. Shall we dive in? Yes, let's go. <laughs> so, 
Uh, who was Baruch Spinoza and what makes Spinozism a monument of what we call rationalist philosophy? So we're going to start with a small question then, right? We, well, we're diving right in, right? <laughs> yeah. So actually the question about who was Spinoza is an interesting one because just trying to state clearly his identity is, is complicated. Um, he was born in Amsterdam and so... Um, as a part of the Dutch Republic, he was Dutch, but he was not Dutch because the Portuguese Jews who lived in Amsterdam were not at this time citizens, although they could buy citizenship. Um, so born in Amsterdam in Holland, the province of Holland in the Dutch Republic, but born into a family of Portuguese exiles who had been forcibly converted to Catholicism back in Portugal. Um, his father and mother fled Portugal, um, ended up eventually in Amsterdam, where Spinoza was born. So born in Holland of Portuguese background, um, parents were ostensibly Christians when they arrived in Holland, um, returned to Judaism, and Spinoza himself was raised in an openly Jewish community. By 1632, when he was born... Um, the Jews of Amsterdam had been practicing openly in the city for several dozen years. And while the Dutch tolerated the Jews, there were certain more conservative elements of the Dutch who wanted to see these foreigners um, expelled. So that's Spinoza's identity. Um, what is his importance? As, um, as you mentioned, he is, I think, without question, the most radical and original thinker um, not just of the early modern period, but I think in the history of philosophy, given who he was and when he was writing, the kinds of things he was saying are just incredible. His stance on toleration, on religion, on politics, uh, on the nature of God, on human happiness and freedom. Um, these are really um, remarkable things for a 17th century thinker to be proposing. Excellent. Yes. And... Um... You write in your biography that what uh, interested Spinoza was the nature of the human being and his place in the world. Uh, what is this creature who is the knower of both himself and the world of which he is a part? What can be concluded from the human being's relationship to the rest of nature about his freedom, his possibilities, and his happiness? What is the nature of his emotional responses to the world and of his actions within it? Uh, traditionally, these are, are typical questions of interest to philosophers, and traditionally, at least in some of the philosophical schools of ancient Greece, the fullest import and really the stakes of how we answer these questions is ethical in nature, which is to say that what is centered in the philosophical system is the degree to which our answers to these kinds of questions can help to transform our lives for the better. And so, interestingly, Spinoza titles his magnum opus, a book that ranges almost uh, over almost every field of philosophical interest from metaphysics to politics, he ultimately gives it the title Ethics. What makes Spinoza's Ethics a work that deeply reflects a tradition of centering ethical concerns in philosophy? And how does it at the same time represent a radical departure with pretty much every tradition that influenced it. I'm not so sure I would say it represents a radical departure from every tradition. In fact, I think Spinoza sits at a crossroads of multiple traditions, not to deny his originality, but I think in many ways what Spinoza represents 
is both the logical culmination of various philosophical trends. For example, uh, medieval Jewish rationalism. I think you can find Maimonidean and Gersonidean and other rationalist Jewish philosophies lurking in, in, his, in the ethics and also in his theological political treatise. And in fact, I don't think you can understand a lot of what Spinoza says without taking into account the uh, Jewish philosophical context. Likewise, I don't think you can understand a lot of what he says without taking into account ancient Stoicism. Spinoza's library had several crucial works by thinkers like Epictetus and Seneca. And a lot of what he has to say about happiness and the emotions and freedom find their sources in ancient Stoic thought. So on the one hand, you have to think of Spinoza as at this really interesting crossroads in the 17th century of ancient and medieval philosophy and also mm -hmm. modern philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, Descartes and Hobbes and contemporary Dutch Republican thought all had their influence on Spinoza. And yet Spinoza was really interested in those great big questions that people turn to philosophy for, the meaning of life, the nature of happiness, what is goodness, what's the relationship between being good and being happy, what is freedom. And I always think it's a great shame that when Spinoza is taught to undergraduates, usually what they end up reading are just parts one and two of the ethics. And Spinoza is situated in some sort of logical progression from Descartes to Leibniz to Locke, Berkeley, and Hume. Mm -hmm. And so they might become familiar with some aspects of Spinoza's metaphysics and his theory of ideas and his epistemology, um, but then it's time to move on to Leibniz or whoever's next in the itinerary, which means that the students are left wondering why the hell is this book called Ethics? There's nothing ethical here. It's just metaphysics and epistemology. I think that's a great shame because you really miss um, the big project that is Spinoza's philosophical game, which is um, ethics, um, goodness, happiness, um, peace, toleration, um, political obligation, uh, religious belief, faith, and reason. These are the themes of his philosophy. And if you don't read the ethics cover to cover, and if you don't, in addition, supplement that with the reading of the theological political treatise, you don't know Spinoza, especially because I think the two works are intimately connected. You can think of the ethics as a kind of theological political treatise where Spinoza is undermining certain superstitious beliefs about God and about the human being that get in the way of the life of freedom. And in, in the theological political treatise, he's taking on certain religious dogma, like the sanctity of the words of the Bible or the possibility of miracles or the way or the nature of religious belief. Um, put it all together and you have a very big project. And unfortunately, most students are only introduced to the metaphysical and epistemological foundations of that project. Yes, and, and Dr. Nather, you just mentioned uh, Spinoza's other great work, uh, The Theological Political Treatise. Dr. Nather, you've written a book on The Theological Political Treatise. You've also written an introductory text on Spinoza's ethics, in addition to the definitive biography on Spinoza. You also mentioned that often when the ethics is taught, um, that students are often only exposed to the first two parts of the ethics. The ethics has four parts. And, five, five parts. Sorry, yeah, five parts, yes. And so part one is concerning God, part two of the nature and origin of the mind, part three concerning the origin and nature of the emotions, part four of human bondage or the strength of the emotions, and part five of the power of the intellect or of human freedom. And um, 
shortly here, I want to get into some of the content of each part of the ethics. But before we do, let's talk a little bit more about the cultural and historical setting of Spinoza's ethics. Uh, as I mentioned, you've written on uh, Spinoza's theological political treatise, which you describe as a book forged in hell. And that's actually the title of the book you wrote on that, on Spinoza's treatise. Now, one thing your biography of Spinoza shows, as you just mentioned, in, in a way, is that really both works, the ethics as well as the theological political treatise, were books forged in hell. So what's going on in the Netherlands and in Europe more broadly in Spinoza's day, the 17th century, that makes these works such cultural and political bombshells? I think first of all, it's important to remember that when, when we think of Spinoza, we think of the Spinoza of the ethics, uh, his views on God and the human being and the emotions. But in Spinoza's lifetime, the ethics wasn't published. It wasn't published until after his death. Um, the Spinoza who so scandalized Europe was the Spinoza of the theological political treatise, his views on miracles, the Bible, um, and on religion. Um, that's what caused uh, the great backlash against Spinoza. When he wrote that book in the late 1660s, he had actually put aside his work on the ethics uh, because of the political, sort of the debilitating political situation in the Dutch Republic at the time. He was afraid that Dutch society and Dutch politics were moving away from the more liberal, tolerant, uh, even secular um, culture that had dominated it through the period of the true freedom ever since... Um, Johann de Witt had taken over um, political leadership of the Republic. And now um, in, in, the, um, in the more precarious political situation of Europe at the time, with France threatening to invade from the West, uh, wars with England and so on, um, there were certain conservative elements among the Dutch who thought it was time to clamp down on the freedoms that the Dutch enjoyed. So one of Spinoza's friends, um, Adrian Korbach, had written a book that had very Spinozistic themes, um, really um, easily taken to be anti-religious or at least anti-Christian themes. Um, and Korbach made two mistakes. First of all, he wrote the book in Dutch, not Latin, so it was accessible to a wide readership. And secondly, he put his name on the cover. So Korbach was thrown in jail mm. where he died in 1668. Mm. And I think Spinoza was not just disappointed, but really angry about that, that this was a kind of betrayal of the principles of Dutch toleration. Not that the Dutch society was this wonderful um, paradise of toleration. It wasn't. There were limits to Dutch toleration. But still, um, his friend was thrown in jail and died there for something he had written. And I think Spinoza saw that Dutch, the Dutch Republic and the republicanism of the Dutch Republic was really under threat. And so the theological political treatise, as I read it at least, is, is, a, is a snarky, even angry book trying to show the Dutch what they're in danger of losing. And the comparisons with the ancient Hebrew commonwealth, where power eventually devolved into the hands of kings and then priests, and so you had this split in political power, um, Spinoza saw the same thing happening in the Dutch Republic as the more conservative elements of the Dutch Reformed Church were usurping political power. And so the question was, was this going to be a secular republic or was it going to be a theocracy? And so you see that uh, really um, 
pressing political context for his composition of that work. He's angry, and he wants to make sure that his readers can see the danger that's threatening um, this wonderful republic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned that Spinoza is angry when he writes his, his theological political treatise. About a year ago, I was visiting with my, one of my undergraduate theology professors. I, I studied Hebrew with him for six semesters. And uh, when I told him I was taking an interest in Spinoza, he mentioned that he had, you know, he remembers reading the theological political treatise. He's a Calvinist. And he says to me, it just, I remember him saying something to the effect, uh, he just sounds like he's complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Kvetching, we would say in, in Yiddish, at least. <laughs> but there is, I think there is a complaint at the heart of the theological political treatise. I think there's also a complaint at the heart of the ethics, although given the geometric style of the work, it's not as clear. But he's, it's, it's a sustained argument against superstition and irrationality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot um, going on in those works, uh, theologically, philosophically. You write that the ethics is an ambitious and multifaceted work. You know, it's more than just a complaint. Um, it is also a bold work to the point of audacity, uh, you write, as one would expect of a systematic and unforgiving critique of traditional philosophical conceptions of God, the human being, and above all, the cosmological, theological, and moral beliefs that constitute the core of major organized religions. But what specifically does Spinoza have to say about God in the ethics or the theological political treatise that makes it so audacious? Well, where to begin? Yeah. (laughs) So when you think of what is traditionally conceived of God in the Abrahamic religions, what you have is a kind of moral and personal agent. Um, The traditional Abrahamic God Uh, is a providential deity. Uh, It's a God who has beliefs and expectations and who issues commands, and so has a great deal of the psychological uh, makeup that we expect of agency. This this God thinks and does things. Um, The Abrahamic God also is endowed with various moral characteristics that we think of in the Abrahamic tradition, um, justice, wisdom, goodness, and so on. Uh, Spinoza's God has none of those things. Spinoza regards that Abrahamic God as a superstitious anthropomorphism, turning a God into a human being. Spinoza's God, um, or he, I should say, he uses the word God to refer to nature. And what he means by nature is just the entirety of what there is, or more precisely, the most fundamental um, being of things. Um, Nature is not a person. It is a causal agent in the sense in which nature causes things to happen, but it's not an intentional or moral causal agent. It doesn't have volitions. Uh, Nature does not make plans. It certainly does not exercise providence. Um, Nature is neither good nor bad, uh, neither perfect nor imperfect. Nature just is. And whatever happens comes about in and through nature with this absolute necessity. Um, There's no contingency in nature. He's quite clear about that. So there's no voluntariness on the part of nature. Nature doesn't do things for a purpose. It doesn't do things volitionally. So to call God nature or nature God, or to use Spinoza's phrase, God or nature, is basically to say nature is all there is. There's nothing outside of nature. There's certainly no supernatural being. There's no providential deity. What that means, as as I read him, um, is that there is no 
God that you are to worship or regard with reverential awe or any kind of religious attitude. Uh, God or nature is to be understood uh, through the intellect and through reason. And what he eventually ends up calling the intellectual love of God is just a deep understanding of nature. So essentially, he's gotten rid of pretty much everything that makes the Abrahamic God a providential being that is the foundation of worship and religious reverence. As an early modern thinker, he's uh, partly working in a kind of epistemological vacuum because the world is undergoing some significant transitions and the foundational beliefs that had held up uh, the medieval world, uh, which were theological in nature, are beginning to give way. And the age of enlightenment is being ushered in. And so to take down some of those superstitious beliefs about, um, about God, Spinoza is relentless in his use uh, of reason. And in the first part of the ethics, he lays out a logical path in 14 propositions to establish this. And you write about these 14 propositions about God. And this is um, what students of Spinoza take a very close look at when they study the, uh, the ethics. Uh, you write that these proofs are stunning in their economy and efficiency, and that they display a simple beauty peculiar to a well-crafted logical deduction. So what does Spinoza take to be the most compelling virtue of reason that makes it deserving of so central a role in his understanding of basically everything? Uh, reason gives you truth. Um, if you want to discover the truth about nature and the truth about the cosmos and the truth about ourselves, um, nature is going to be the tool you need to use. And the beliefs generated by nature um, are much more adequate and reliable than beliefs generated by the passions. Now, you, you did say something about an epistemological vacuum. I, th I think that's, that's sort of misleading. Um, no philosopher ever works in an epistemological vacuum. It's always uh, in not just a social and historical context, but a philosophical context. And a lot of, of Spinoza, I don't think, actually don't think Spinoza is that interested in epistemology in the way in which, say, Descartes was. Mm -hmm. For Descartes, it was important, as he says, at least once in life, to engage in an epistemological project and try to see um, what can and cannot be known for certain. And so you have the exercise of the meditations where he goes through, he, uh, he assumes the position of a skeptical doubter to see if there are any beliefs that can be uh, discovered to be immune to doubt, and then use those beliefs to come up with criteria for justifying beliefs. I get the sense that Spinoza is not that interested in epistemology, uh, but it doesn't mean he's working in an epistemological vacuum. I mean, he's working in an epistemological framework that he does essentially inherit from Descartes, but also from uh, Thomas Hobbes. Um, the vision of the mind as made up of ideas. Uh, some of these ideas are obscure and confused, sensory ideas, imaginative ideas, emotions, or passions. Uh, and some of these ideas are clear and distinct, or to use Spinoza's preferred phrase, adequate. Mm -hmm. And uh, to return to your question, the ideas of reason are adequate, which means they give us a deep understanding, not just of what things are, but why they are as they are, and why they had to be that way. And the upshot of that is that once you see the necessity of things, that will have an effect, a beneficial effect on your emotional life. As he says, you'll no longer get so 
passionately upset over the over the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's not Spinoza, of course, that's Shakespeare. But um, you you won't get so distraught over the loss of something you loved, or you won't get so overjoyed at the acquisition of something you valued, because you recognize that very often the coming and going of these things is not under your control. That's sort of the Stoic element. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for Spinoza. Um, reason provides you truth, but it also provides you happiness, well-being, peace of mind, and tranquility. And uh, reading uh, your biography on Spinoza, um, you can see that Spinoza certainly wasn't uh, unfamiliar with intense passions. You can only imagine the kinds of the passions he experienced and emotional turmoil he experienced uh, given some of the things that he went through in his life, especially at a young age as a young man in his early 20s. It's incredible the amount of, of ire that Spinoza's free thinking provoked. So let's talk about one of the earliest and certainly most impactful episodes of social backlash and ire that Spinoza's ideas provoked. Uh, and it all started on July 27th, 1653, when Spinoza was still just a young man of 23. 1656. Oh, 1656. Yes. My mistake. Um, you turned him into a teenager at the time. <laughs> So it was on this day in 1656 that what you describe as the most vitriolic ban ever issued by the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam in the 17th century was read in front of the Ark of the Community Synagogue. And that ban was against Spinoza. With the judgment of the angels and with that of the saints, the ban reads, and I have to read it um, because it's just so in a way, entertaining to read. Well, it's also it's a remarkably striking document. Mm -hmm. I think. Very powerful. So uh, the band reads, We ostracize, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinoza with the consent of blessed God and with the consent of this entire holy congregation before these holy scrolls with the 613 precepts which are written in them, with the curse when Elisha cursed the youth and with all the curses that are written in the law. Cursed be he by day, and cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, and cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not forgive him. The fury and zeal of the Lord will burn against this man and bring upon him all the curses that are written in the book of the law. And may the Lord erase his name from under the heavens, and may the Lord separate him for evil from all of the tribes of Israel with all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. And you that cleave unto the Lord, your God, all of you are alive today. No one should communicate with him orally or in writing, nor provide him any favor, nor be with him under the same roof, nor be within four cubits of him, nor read any paper composed or written by him. Whew. Now, we could get into the details of the unique and precarious social and political conditions that the Portuguese Jewish community was facing in 1656 Amsterdam, which may help us to sympathize to some extent with their decision to so strongly condemn Spinoza's free thinking. But what I'd like to consider instead is how such a harsh expulsion from the community of his childhood and youth must have felt for the young Spinoza especially considered, uh, considering the many other compounded personal challenges he had been facing. The loss of his biological, as well as his stepmother, the death of his sister in 1651. I'm concerned about my dates now. Uh, that would be his brother. His brother. Uh, anyway, when he was 19 years old, I think I have the age right. And the death of his father at the age of 21. So talk about emotionally overwhelming. 
here we have precisely the kind of life circumstances that may lead a person down a path of bitterness, cynicism, and resentment towards the world. And yet that was not the destiny of Spinoza. Uh, to the contrary, he was reputed among those who knew him best as being anything but a bitter or resentful soul. In fact, he's even acquired a reputation among philosophers as the gentle philosopher, tender and caring towards his friends, of calm demeanor, slow to anger, and of course, deeply thoughtful. Now, while in the midst of such profoundly distressing life circumstances, perhaps Spinoza did not display all the traits of equanimity and cool-headed, life-affirming beatitude that he would ultimately recognize as the sagely ideal, but he did eventually come to embody those traits. How is that transition from overwhelming distress and suffering to serene, self-controlled joy reflected in Spinoza's understanding of human nature and our place in the universe as presented in his ethics? I think all we can say is that he, that for him, his philosophy was not just some abstract exercise, but expresses the way that he realized he had to deal with the world. You know, one of the frustrating things as Spinoza's biographer is the lack of documentation. We have 89 letters, which include the letters that people wrote to him. Um, and then we have a couple of philosophical works. There must have been many more letters, but the friends who compiled his posthumous writings um, destroyed letters that were uh, more personal, that were not just a philosophical interest. So, you know, we don't really have Spinoza's reaction to the cherem, the excommunication. I would love to be able to see in Spinoza's hand something that he had to say about it. It had to be an extremely traumatic event. I mean, you're uh, 23 years old um, and you're being kicked out of the community into which you were born and which educated you and nurtured you. Um, your parents are both dead at this point. Um, it must have been a, a real shock, but we have no expression of that from Spinoza himself. Uh, at the same time, I get the sense that Spinoza was ready to leave the Jewish community, maybe not cut himself off entirely because he needed to, he needed to be a member of the community to continue in the family business that he had taken over after his father's death. But um, you get the sense that by this point, he had pretty much lost his religious faith. Um, who knows if he was still going to synagogue or not. There is, in one of his earliest writings, which he began composing probably on 1658, so just two years after the harem, um, the treatise on the emendation of the intellect, which he would leave unfinished. But that treatise begins with a short autobiographical, um, autobiographical reflection in which Spinoza details how he came to the philosophical life. And what he says, it, it seems very natural and almost familiar to anybody who's gone through a similar experience. Well, look, I was living the life of a businessman, pursuing whatever it is businessmen pursue, um, money, reputation, and so on. And it left me feeling unsatisfied. So I asked myself, is, are these really the true goods of a life? Or is there something more meaningful? Are there some, is there some supreme good that I can pursue whose attainment is not so given to fluctuations or factors beyond my control. And he realized that, well, yes, there is. It's knowledge and understanding. And the way to find that is through the life of the philosopher. So what we have in this short autobiographical um, paragraphs 
is Spinoza's testimony as to how he came to deal with um, what was his life and what is now his life. And uh, applying um, reason to the, uh, to the emotions, uh, you explain in your biography how Spinoza was able to carefully catalog, analyze, and evaluate different passions of human beings. Love, joy, hate, sadness, envy, shame, desire, gratitude, remorse, and so on, and to demonstrate uh, which are most conducive to human happiness and which contribute to our destruction. Which emotions uh, does Spinoza select out as enabling us or increasing our power of action, as he puts it, and which disempower us, or as he puts it, separate us from our power of action? It's easier to state the ones that disempower us. Um... Joy and sadness, insofar as they are passions, that is, insofar as they are externally caused emotions, um, these put us at the mercy of external things, not in control of ourselves. And joy and sadness give rise to hope and fear, uh, and hope and fear give rise to superstition, especially superstitious hopes like the hope for an eternal reward in some fictional heaven or the fear of eternal punishment in some alleged hell. Um, these are dangerous passions because they lead us to throw ourselves at the mercy of ecclesiastic authorities, um, priests and rabbis, people who claim to know how to get to heaven and how to avoid hell. And so if your life is governed by the passions of hope and fear, um, you're going to let these ecclesiastic people control your life. You're not going to be in control of yourself. Um, so this gives rise to superstition, and that gives rise to what he calls bondage or enslavement to the passions. Um, the emotions that are beneficial um, are intellectual emotions. That is, the, the feelings that we get, um, the stirrings or emotions that we feel when we feel or when we undergo an increase in our power, not by some external thing, but through our own resources. So the improvement in our condition that we experience when we learn something, when we gain understanding or increase our knowledge, that, that's not just a sterile intellectual state, it's an emotional state, and it comes with its own uh, affective aspects. And those are the good emotions because they encourage us to pursue even more knowledge and more understanding, uh, culminating eventually in what he calls the intellectual love of God which given the identification of God with nature, just as the intellectual understanding of nature, which represents um, the human condition in its strongest and most powerful state. Mm -hmm. And that is a supreme joy. Yes. And part of um, what is important for Spinoza is identifying correctly the causes of the passions that we're experiencing. So if we, if we connect up our emotion to a false cause. For example, uh, I'm being punished because I did something wrong. God is punishing me. Then our ideas are confused and our emotions will likewise be confused and prone to, as you mentioned, uh, control by, say, ecclesiastical authorities. But um, so it's important for, for Spinoza to understand the actual causes, uh, have a knowledge of the actual causes. And so you write that this knowledge, knowledge of actual causes, leads to love of the highest being on whom everything else depends. 
In this way, we can condition ourselves to act without passions, such as hate and envy, all of which are based anyway on misconceptions and false evaluations of things, as well as on a lack of insight into their necessity. The proper use of reason will eliminate those harmful passions from our lives. Now, would it be accurate from a Spinoza's perspective to call such harmful passions irrational? And can our passions ever be considered rational? And if so, how? Or if not, why not? Well, I think if by rational you mean um, generated from reason, then the passions almost by definition are irrational because they're generated by external things. Um, the way to control the passions, to weaken them, um, he says you can never eliminate the passions because we will always be a part of the world and always subject to these passive emotions. But the way to control them and at least weaken them is to understand them. So you can rational, take a rational approach to the passions. It doesn't make the passions rational, but it makes your condition more rational. And the more you understand your passions and the more you understand yourself, the greater self-control you'll have. So the passions can be sort of marshaled uh, by knowledge and reason and... Um, transformed. Transformed, yeah. yeah. It's important... In relation to a larger, more comprehensive view of the world, reality. Yeah, you put them in the context of this big causal picture and you come to a deeper understanding of them and Spinoza believes that they won't move you so deeply. But it's important to distinguish for Spinoza the passions from the emotions because mm -hmm. there are, the passions are the passive emotions, mm -hmm. um, but there are also active emotions. Those are the good emotions, the ones that represent um, increases in our power that come from within us. Right, yeah. And he, he defines happiness in relation to this increase in our power of action. Right. And um, sadness is the opposite of that. Right. What separates us from our power of action, like hatred and envy, those negative, harmful passions that leave us. Um, I don't know if you, the quote, what is it? He says something about, he has a beautiful quote about being, you know, when you're lost in your passions, you're tossed about like a ship on the sea. Tossed, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very nice, you know, every once in a while, Spinoza will let his hair down and give us a very poetic metaphor. And I, I feel like uh, in Seneca's letters to Asilius, we can probably find several places where something very similar is said. And I also write that uh, Spinoza's aims in parts three and four of the ethics, those are part three concerning the origin and nature of uh, the emotions, and then part four of human bondage or the strength of the emotions. Uh, you mentioned that the aim of these is to restore the human being and his volitional and emotional life into their proper place in nature. For nothing stands outside of nature, not even the human being. Now the means of this restoration is a certain kind of knowledge. What sort of knowledge does Spinoza think we need and how do we come to acquire it? Uh, by reading the ethics. Because the knowledge that represents that deep understanding of nature just is the knowledge that consists in the propositions of the ethics. Um, knowing about nature, uh, knowing about God, that God is nature, knowing about the human mind and what our ideas are, um, what our emotions are, what explains them, um, both the active and the passive emotions. Um, that's just the kind of knowledge, both knowledge of the world around you and knowledge of yourself, that is the content of the ethics. 
Um, and so if you read the ethics, you're on your way to acquiring um, the kind of knowledge that represents um, freedom, um, self-understanding, um, activity, rationality, and ultimately happiness. He has, he calls these, um, and I've, I've mentioned, I've used this phrase, I think a, a couple of times now, adequate ideas. Just to provide a quote um, on what he means by adequate ideas, a, a quote from your biography. Uh, Whatever happens in the body is reflected or expressed in the mind. In this way, the mind perceives more or less obscurely what is taking place in its body and through its body interactions with other bodies. The mind is aware of what is happening in the physical world around it. But the human mind no more interacts with its body than any mode of thought interacts with the mode of extension. So what, this gets at a really interesting um, distinction in Spinoza between thought and extension. Um, could you say something a little bit about how he perceives or he understands uh, thought and extension? Sure. The, these are the two aspects of nature that we understand. Uh, because we have bodies and because we have minds, we know what it is to be a body and we know what it is to be a mind or thought. Uh, a body just is extension. It's three-dimensionality. It's the con conception of body that Spinoza inherits from Descartes. And that's one way of being in nature. Nature has bodies. But there's another way of being in nature, because in nature, in addition to bodies, there are thoughts. But these are distinct aspects of nature which have absolutely nothing in common. Bodies are extended and spatial, and they causally interact by contact. Um, thoughts are not spatial. They're immaterial. They don't have extension. Uh, and so the connections between thoughts, while causal, are not the kind of causality that you find among bodies. Um, because they're such disparate and distinct aspects of nature, bodily events, contrary to what we may think, bodily events do not cause mental events, and mental events do not cause bodily events. But rather, a bodily event and a mental event are one and the same thing expressing itself under both aspects of nature. So let's take a, a very easy example. Let's say you sit on a thumbtack. You're going to feel pain. Um, the ordinary way of thinking of that is the, the physical event, the sitting on the thumbtack and the entry of the point of the tack into the fibers of the body causes the mental state of pain. Spinoza says that's not the right way to think of it. It's one and the same event. And the event that expresses itself in the physical world as the thumbtack entering the body expresses itself in the mental world as a feeling of pain. Uh, similarly, if I, if I raise my arm, my volition to raise my arm is not some antecedent cause of the arm rising, but rather it's one and the same event. The event that expresses itself in my mind as a volition to raise the arm expresses itself in the world, in the physical world, as the raising of my arm. It's not that one occurs before the other, it's one and the same thing expressing itself in two ways. So these two attributes, the attribute of thought and the attribute of extension, um, these remain causally independent of one another. They're just sort of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, it's as if you um, put on a pair of glasses, you know, the 3D glasses, one, lens is red, one lens is blue. Um, 
you perceive things through one eye as red, you perceive them as blue, but you're perceiving the same things. Given the causal independence um, of the mind with the body is, would be another way of putting it, what would Spinoza think of what today we call psychosomatic symptoms? The idea that real physical symptoms might arise causally or, influ or are influenced by mind and emotions. Would Spinoza recognize those kinds of influences? Uh, sure. I, he might not call them influences, though. It's just that various mental events, every mental event is correlated with a physical event. Um, so let's say I'm, uh, I'm a hypochondriac and I have this feeling of pain, but there's, there's nothing going on in my foot. So I'm, am I making it up? Well, no, there must be something happening in my body to correlate with the feeling of pain. It's just not happening in my foot. Maybe it's happening in my brain or somewhere else in my nervous system. So there, this um, universal and exceptionless correlation between mental events and physical events is preserved. It's not a causal relationship. Um, just because, and you know, to take a, a very common example, um, I'm thinking of a unicorn. It doesn't follow there's a unicorn in the world. What, it, what follows is that there's a state of my body um, which correlates to my thought of a unicorn. And in this case, it would be a state of my brain. Some chemical or neurological process occurring in the brain would be the physical or extended correlate of my thought of a unicorn. And getting back to the idea of adequate versus inadequate ideas, it's very important for our happiness that we're able to form adequate ideas of states that are taking place in our bodies. And so some of these ideas, sensory images, qualitative feelings like pains or pleasures, uh, unicorns, figments of the imagination, perceptual data, these are imprecise qualitative phenomena, and they are the expressions of states of the body as it is affected by other bodies surrounding it in a kind of causal nexus. Well, such ideas do not convey adequate knowledge and true knowledge of the world, but only relative, partial, and subjective picture of how things presently seem to be to the perceiver. Adequate ideas, on the other hand, you write, are formed in a rational and orderly manner and are necessarily true and revelatory of the essences of things. Reason which is the second kind of knowledge after random experience. So we have different kinds of knowledge, different levels of knowledge in Spinoza. We have the random experiences, which tend to have corresponding ideas that are inadequate, but then reason represents a second kind of knowledge and is the apprehension of the essence of a thing through a discursive inferential procedure. What uh, does, do those procedures look like for Spinoza? Uh, it looks like the ethics, because what you have in the ethics is this discursive um, series of propositions. Um, you start with definitions and axioms, or at least the ethics does, and from there you derive propositions, and propositions lead to other propositions. Um, that's reason. I think the content of the ethics is a presentation of a rational understanding, a metaphysical understanding, epistemological understanding, and um, ethical propositions. Excellence. Yes. Um, you also write uh, that Spinoza's conception of adequate knowledge reveals an unrivaled optimism in the cognitive powers of the human being. Uh, he also has no scruples claiming, uh, you continue, that we can, at least in principle, know God perfectly and adequately, God again being synonymous with nature. 
No other philosopher in history has been willing to make this claim, you write, but then again, no other philosophy identified God with nature. Uh, why does Spinoza engage in such a detailed analysis of the composition of the human being? Because that's the most important thing for us to know. It's to know ourselves. It goes right back to the old, uh, to the ancient Greeks, uh, the, you know, throughout the Greek tragedies and um, Greek philosophical writings, and even the Oracle of Delphi, the inscription over the Oracle of Delphi said, know yourself. Um, and it's, the old, it's an old Socratic um, project. The um, Spinoza's optimism here, it's not unlimited. I think he does, he certainly does recognize that even though nature is in principle transparent to reason, um, we are only finite beings. And because nature is infinite, we cannot know the whole of nature. We cannot know the, the infinite series of finite causes, but we can know um, the most general principles of nature, what, um, what scholars call, Spinoza scholars call the finite series of infinite causes. Um, and that's the important thing, to situate whatever happens, whether it's happening in your body or happening in the world around you, um, we have the capacity to situate that in a causal nexus, which reveals its necessity. Um, and that causal nexus goes right up to nature's most universal principles. That is the nature of extension, the nature of thought, the laws of bodies, the laws of thinking, and all the, um, all the essences of things that follow from those. Is there a way for people to uh, attempt to gain adequate ideas of states of their body that... Uh, even if they don't read the ethics, or is the ethics absolutely indispensable for this project? No, I, you know, Socrates didn't read the ethics, couldn't mm -hmm. have read the ethics, but he probably had as good a grasp as anybody of the true natures of things, or perhaps, who knows. Um, no, I mean, the ethics makes it, <laughs> it's sort of paradoxical, uh, as difficult and um, opaque a book as the ethics is, um, it makes it easier for us to gain that knowledge because he presents it all quite clearly. With but, Stoic sculpture, one commentator, Will Durant, says about the... Stoic sculpture? Yeah, the way <laughs> the ethics is crafted. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. But, you know, Spinoza didn't have an ethics to read, and he figured it out, and so, so can we. So, so far, we've discussed Spinoza's uh, metaphysics, his views on God and nature... Uh, his what's sometimes called mind-body parallelism. We've talked about theories of human emotion. We haven't talked yet about the, the intellectual love of God. Uh, we've, well, we have, but not directly. Could you say something about what um, the intellectual love of God is in Spinoza? Yeah, it looks like at the end of the ethics, well, Spinoza starts reverting to what seems to be traditional religious language, blessedness, salvation, and the love of God. And it looks like he's going soft on us at the end. Um, one scholar has suggested that Spinoza realized that he didn't have much longer to live and decided to pay attention to the state of his soul. But his name means blessed, doesn't it? Uh, Baruch, yeah, yeah. Benedictus. Um, I, I think that's total bullshit. I think Spinoza is using this religious language very deliberately, but just as he uses the word God, but gives it a, a Spinozistic twist, so he uses blessedness, salvation, and the love of God in a very idiosyncratic way. Well, not that idiosyncratic, because the intellectual love of God harkens back to Maimonides, for whom the, the, um, there was a, an intellectual 
love of God. He doesn't use that phrase, but where the love of God is a deep understanding of the cosmos. Uh, blessedness just is the, the self-satisfaction or the, the adequate knowledge of oneself and the joy that comes with that. And so part of the reason why he perhaps maybe has to cloak uh, his ideas in this uh, religious language has to do with, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, the political situation uh, that Spinoza was living through. Yeah, so, I, don't, I don't think so. No? I don't think he's cloaking anything. I think he's using the religious language not to, not to save his ass, but to appeal or draw his readers in because they're looking for in reading his philosophy, they want to know what are, what's the truth about God? What is happiness? What is blessedness? What is salvation? And in a way, Spinoza is saying, okay, you, you want to know what God is? Here's what God is. You want to know about salvation? I'll tell you about salvation. Here's mm -hmm. what it is. So it's a way of drawing his readers in. Um, the idea that Spinoza was cloaking things, I know that this, this is not an uncommon way of reading him, especially among Straussians, that Spinoza, there's an esoteric um, there's an exoteric or the sort of the surface message, and then there's an esoteric or secret message, and you have to work really hard to get the secret message. But, you know, you read the ethics and you read the theological political treatise, and you think, wow, the surface message is so bold. Oh, my God, what could the secret message be? <laughs> he says, he lays it all out there. God is nature. The Bible is just a work of human literature. Miracles are impossible. Oh, really? Then what's the secret message? <laughs> I don't buy it. It's not the secret message so much as really uh, the kernel of truth that uh, is sort of maybe surrounded by superstitions of the institutionalized religions. It may, yeah. I mean, it may be that the only way, the only place where he's taking it easy or not saying everything he could say is when he discusses Christianity because he doesn't want to thoroughly alienate the liberal Christian audience, the or the liberal theologians who might be a receptive readers of the work. Mm -hmm. So, and he, he also writes for his friends too. Yes, which is something I really like about Spinoza that he's, uh, you know, he's not. A lot of um, his great works are. I think he's writing with his friends. You mentioned he's writing with his friends in mind, and with some of them. Yeah, and the manuscript of the Ethics circulated among his friends, and uh, some of them were Christians. Yes, uh, rather unorthodox Christians. They yeah. were Quakers, Mennonites. Uh, collegians, and some of them were um, didn't really identify with any sectarian religion at all. Now, how about Spinoza's politics? These theories that we've been discussing have significant implications for political position, the political positions that Spinoza takes. Uh, you write that Spinoza's political views were profoundly democratic. He was, in his ideas on the state and society, a liberal Republican for whom sovereignty lay in the will of the people. He argued strenuously for freedom of thought and speech and for a polity in which the rights of citizens were protected against any abuses of power. But how does Spinoza's understanding of God and human nature translate into his political theory? Well, if there is no providential supernatural deity, then first of all, um, religious authorities have no special right to govern the state. They don't have any special insight or special divina divination powers that will allow them. They should keep to themselves. Um, and so, first of all, you'll have a secular state. Uh, second, he, he believes that democracy is the means, the best means to ensure 
that the laws enacted by the state will be rational laws because in a democratic forum, um, passions tend to cancel each other out and therefore what emerges in the end is a rational policy. At the same time, I think Spinoza was under no illusions about the fickleness and danger of the crowd, the masses. He's seen uh, in 1672, he saw the masses uh, turn against uh, the political leadership of the Dutch Republic. And he think he's, I think he realized that the, the masses were governed by irrational passions. Um, he says, if all individuals, if all people were, were truly rational, we wouldn't need a state. But we're not. And the state is there, um, not just to govern our passions, but to help us move closer towards lives of reason. Yes, I, I do remember reading that uh, you, you write that Spinoza saw, as a lot of political philosophers see with democracy, the possibility of leaving it open to demagoguery. Right. But he was confident enough in reason that he thought that that was, although possible, uh, not so likely. Is that is that correct? Um, so you're saying he was pessimistically optimistic. Well, he was um, realistically optimistic, maybe. Okay, yeah, I could live with that. All right, so we're running out of time here. So what better way to conclude than with the way that Spinoza concludes his ethics? He writes, if the road I have pointed out as leading to this goal seems very difficult. Yet it can be found. Indeed, what is so rarely discovered is bound to be hard. For if salvation were ready to hand and could be discovered without great toil, how could it be that it is almost universally neglected? All things excellent are as difficult as they are rare. Why does Spinoza conclude his ethics with an admission that the path to what he calls salvation here is difficult and those who travel it successfully rare? Is it because human nature and culture are steeped in superstitious irrationalities? And how would Spinoza like to see his readers practicing the cultivation of reason in pursuit of all things excellent? Uh, it is certainly difficult because we are passionate beings and we cannot, as he says, we cannot not be a part of the world, cannot not be a part of nature. And so in the midst of this project to live rational lives, we're constantly being bombarded um, by external temptations and the passions that they generate. That's what makes it hard. If we could somehow wall ourselves off from the external world, it'd be a lot easier, but we can't. Um, but the project is worthwhile. In fact, it's essential because we cannot not strive for happiness. And Spinoza thinks he's found the path to happiness and well-being and in an act of great philosophical generosity has gone to the trouble of laying it out for us. Mm -hmm. So the, the more we think about it and the clearer our thoughts are, the easier it will be to sort of tether those passions to accurate knowledge about the way things are and the more we're able to do that, the better off we are. Yeah. The closer exactly. we, we arrive toward a state of blessedness. Yep. That's right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Nadler, for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to engage the topic in more depth, be sure to sign up for our free weekend seminar starting Saturday, September 5th. The seminar will be held online over a period of 14 weeks and is open to anyone. 
just email philosophyforthepeople at gmail.com and you will be automatically registered to receive updates and weekly invitations to our online classroom. Again, that's starting September 5th. This has been a solid work production. Solid work. Solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid, solid work. work.